So, Derek. Mm-hmm. The postponed episode. We were supposed to record this two days ago. We were supposed to record this on Tuesday, and then we were supposed to record it on Thursday, and then now we're recording it uh, on Friday. It is currently Friday, March 5th, 2021. Yeah. But it's also quite late. Uh, for me, it's 10.45 p.m. It's uh, For me, it's 11.45. makes it uh, quarter Which makes midnight. this the latest episode. It's going to be the next day when we finish this for me. Derek, I need to ask you something, and in doing so, I need to let the listeners know of a uh, of a character development for their favorite podcast host. Okay. And that is, uh, I've been saying for a while that, despite my, my uh, apprehension, I want to get into gin. Yeah. And uh, recently I bought a, a Mickey of Tankery, and I've uh, had an alright time with it. I made a ghetto Tom Collins the other night. Yeah, it was the worst thing I've ever seen. It was pretty tasty. But it did not look like or sound like a Tom Collins. <laughs> no, it was the Sunday SpongeBob makes. <laughs> I, I swear, it sounded like you were, were enjoying it, but it did not sound like it was a Tom Collins. Oh, it was it was quite tasty. What were the ingredients in that again? Um, it was brown sugar based simple syrup, lemon juice. Uh, there was no sparkling water, so I used just regular ass tap water. So it was flat, okay, and it has molasses in it from the brown sugar. Yes. So it's a drink with molasses. It was tasty, all right. And then what was it? In it? What was else was in it? Uh, the gin, the lemon, the lemon juice, and oh. and ice, and I think that was it. Yeah. Okay. Also, I just realized um, I don't have my gin, so I'm gonna be right back with that. This has been one. Hell of a, of a good opening here. Yep. That's one thing you could say. This is Unreliable Sources, a Wikipedia show with Eric and Derek, where Eric and I discuss the funniest, weirdest, and most interesting Wikipedia articles we can find, hopefully for your education and enjoyment. Warning. Information shared may be unreliable after filtering through our brains. Side effects of listening to unreliable sources may include, but are not limited to, unleashing an ancient curse, getting company benefits, being on the cover of Time magazine, midnight insanity, killing your brother, and fabricating 300 years of history. So I went out after work today, Derek, and I picked up all the ingredients for a gin and tonic that I didn't already have at home. Which I imagine was tonic water? No, I didn't have lime juice either. Okay, that's fair. So, I now have in front of me Canada Dry Soda Tonic, or tonic water if you're English. Mm-hmm. I have lime juice. I have a shot glass with measurements on the side, so I'm precise. I've got Tanqueray uh, London Dry Gin. I've got a pint glass, because that's the best I, I have on hand. And I have an actual cocktail spoon, because uh, here at the Marshall House, we bougie. I am so glad to hear that you got Canada Dry Tonic Water, because President's Choice brand... Uh, is just bad i tried it once it was like super sickly sweet and but also bitter at the same time because tonic water is a little bitter this episode is brought to you in part by president choice (laughs) so uh derek i want you to walk me through making my gnt okay okay i'm down for this i've got ice in the glass already but what goes first after the ice and in what quantities first you're gonna add in the gin all right so two ounces the gin Two ounces of gin. Let's 
That's two ounces of gin. So now what's next? What's next? Next, you're going to add the lime juice. About a half an ounce to three quarters of an ounce. Alrighty. One half ounce of lime juice. It's in the cup. Alright. Give that a little swirl. Give it a little swirl right now? Yeah. Just mix the lime juice in it. The sound of the mixing spoon is ungodly, so I'll save you from that. That's that mixing spoon. (laughs) The sound is terrible. Uh, But now you are going to just top it with the tonic water. So the whole can? Yeah. Just do a whole can. Maybe taste it. See if you want a little bit more tonic water. Well, here First, I'm going to taste the tonic water because I've never had tonic water before. It's a strange thing. Okay, so that starts off tasting like a ginger ale. I think... And then it's like, no, that's not ginger ale at all. <laughs> so... Yeah, that's... Uh-huh. Here we go with the tonic water. The whole kit and caboodle going in. I think I explained the whole tonic water story in the actual episode where I talked about the GNT. Yes, the quinine and, and it being a cure for malaria, I believe it yeah, was. Yeah, exactly. Yes, I've learned stuff from our podcast. Our tagline is never stop learning. So, um, I have the entire can in there. Anything else? Should I go and get another can? Uh, what do you think? Taste it. If it tastes too strongly alcoholic, then you might want a little bit more. Cheers. That's pretty all right. It's a bit bitter, a bit sour. Add in perhaps a little more lime juice if it if it doesn't taste limey enough can help bring down bitterness. Yeah, I went with the lower end of the your assessment for lime juice. So I'm gonna add another quarter ounce to that bad boy. If you were a madman, you could even go with a whole ounce, though that would be like limey. Derek. Why you gotta challenge me? You know how I take challenges. <laughs> so that's another half ounce of lime juice for a total of one ounce. Especially when you're do, I mean, like I wouldn't do like one ounce if it was only a one ounce of gin drink, but I like to do the double shot of gin because it just uh, helps to get that gin flavor in there. Which I hate when cocktails just have no alcohol flavor. I mean, sometimes that's this what you really want. This doesn't taste like... much like the Tanqueray because Tanqueray's. Uh, pretty light from what I've had of gin, which isn't a whole lot. But I definitely get the, the juniper on the nose, which is nice. It's aromatic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's better with the more lime. I'm a big fan of the lime, so I actually use more than most people. You probably might only do like a, a squeeze of lime at some places. So without further ado, Derek. Yeah. I think I'll go first. Okay. So... This week, I'm starting with a conspiracy theory for you. Ooh, I like it. But first, care to regale the folks at home with your personal favorite conspiracy theory? Because you taught it to me, and it's my favorite as well. I think I know the one you're talking about. I am a fan of many conspiracy theories. I do not believe them, I'll admit. But I'm just a fan of the spirit of it. So now I shall tell you the tale of the moon landing. Ooh. Now I'm sure you've heard of the moon landing conspiracies that it was faked, right? They filmed it in the studio. 
that but they've proved that's impossible we have actually yeah. proven that the lights in the studios would not cast the same shadows so they proved that the moon landing could not have been faked in a studio but that did not account for the power of stanley cooper <laughs> Now, we all know Kubrick as a man who is very meticulous in his filmmaking. They say that if you look at the shot, if there's like a teacup that's tipped over on the table in the background that's out of focus, that Stanley Kubrick specifically decided it would be that way. Yes. So in the effort to make this moon landing, this fake moon landing, as perfect as it could be, as believable, so it would fool the entire nation... The only solution they could find was to shoot on location. On the moon. On the moon. So the landing you see is faked, but we did go to the moon, and that's that's the theory. Yeah. And I think that's wonderful. <laughs> oh, that's my alarm going off. I set an alarm to specifically oh, it's oh, midnight. Let me know when it was 11 p.m. here. Oh, now. Because for you, it's the two-day episode. Yes. So what what date is it right now, Derek? It's March 6th. And no, I my computer says March 5th. Time zones. <laughs> So, with the conspiracy theory of time being a social construct out of the way, get out your tinfoil hats and check under your bed for government recording devices because it's conspiracy theory time. Okay. Today, we'll be talking about the phantom time hypothesis. I love it already. The phantom time hypothesis is a historical conspiracy theory started by Hilbert Illing in 1991. So I know I just asked you this, Derek, but could you please repeat again the full date to me? Um, March 6th, 2021? Wrong! It is actually March 6th, 1724, because the years 614 to 911 were made up. (laughs) What? Wait. The theory asserts that the AD system of dating things was manufactured by the Holy Roman Empire Otto III, Pope Sylvester I, and the Byzantine Emperor Constantine the Seventh. What? So these three co-conspirators <laughs> supposedly created the years six fourteen and nine hundred eleven, so that they would place the three of them as ruling during the coveted year one thousand to legitimize their rules with the magic of a big number with lots of zeros. What? I'm not even following. It's so bonkers. So according to according to Illing, Otto III, Pope Sylvester I, and Emperor Constantine the Seventh made up the years six fourteen to nine eleven, so that the the date would go six thirteen to nine twelve in reality. And the way they supposedly did this is by rewriting history through alteration, misrepresentation, or forgery of textual and physical evidence. Wikipedia notes an example of one of the historical casualties of the ramifications of this being true is that the entire Carolingian period, including Charlemagne, fucking Charlemagne, were made up and never existed. Don't worry, though. According to this, we can safely say that due to being from the early 6th century, friend of the podcast, Serdic, or Cherdich, still did exist. Well, unless he didn't exist to begin with. Listen to episode three, the one we forgot to name for more on that. So the the opening section, uh, the opening like section of Wikipedia closes with the following sentence, quote, the hypothesis has never attracted any support from historians, end quote. Okay. 
So I bet you are dying to hear the evidence, quote-unquote, that the theory has to support its claims, right? Yes, please. All right, so Illing's theory hinges on three basic points. One, the scarcity of archaeological evidence that can be reliably dated to the period between 614 and 911. This, of course, only works under the assumption that historians rely too much on unreliable sources, A, of dating, like <laughs> the written record, carbon dating, and dendrochronology, which is the use of tree rings to date stuff. Two, the prevalence of Romanesque architecture in the 10th century of Europe implies that the Roman period wasn't as long ago as conventionally assumed. And three, the relationship between the Julian and Gregorian calendars. So I'm going to read verbatim what Wikipedia has to say about that point to get home what the evidence is. Quote, The Julian calendar, introduced by Julius Caesar, was long known to introduce a discrepancy from the tropical year of around one day for each century that the calendar was in use. By the time the Gregorian calendar was introduced in A.D., 1582. Illig alleges that the old Julian calendar should have produced a discrepancy of 13 days between it and the real, or tropical, calendar. Instead, the astronomers and mathematicians working for Pope Gregory XIII had found that the civil calendar needed to be adjusted by only 10 days. The Julian calendar day Thursday, October 4th, 1582, was followed by the first day of the Gregorian calendar, Friday the 15th of October, 1582. From this, Illig concludes that the A.D. era had counted roughly three centuries which never existed. So detractors to the theory, of which there are many, can make several points to discredit the theory. Some of my favorites, of which I'll detail here. First, the Gregorian calendar was never intended to bring the calendar back in line with where the Julian calendar should have been from its inception in 45 BCE, but to better line up with the Catholic calculations of Easter using the spring equinox, which should be happening on the 21st of March, but had drifted to being the 10th of March. The 300 years of missing time that Illig purports then come from the inception of the Julian calendar in 46 BCE to the Council of Nicaea in third, uh, 320 CE when the dating of Easter was decided. Now, normally this point would have been a bit too long for me to warrant putting the whole thing in there, but the supposed discrepancy between the Julian and Gregorian calendars was the only legit sounding evidence for the phantom time theory, at least to me. And I wanted to make sure that I specifically attacked that one so that no one leaves this show getting any ideas. You hear that, folks? <laughs> Don't go getting any ideas. This is bullshit. <laughs> and now I know I made a bit of a joke of the theory asserting that Charlemagne didn't exist. But that is actually one of the bigger holes in the validity of the theory. If Charlemagne was made up by Otto III and his buddies for a classic prank, then there would also have to have been a corresponding fabrication of the history of for literally the rest of Europe, including, but not limited to, Anglo-Saxon history, Papal history, Byzantine history, and Germanic history. Charlemagne is literally called the father of Europe. His influence was so great. So, the most damning evidence against the theory, though, is observations of the written history of astrological observations as witnessed by Europeans prior to the supposed phantom time. By using solar eclipses, 
Halley's Comet, and other such occurrences, and comparing them to the mathematical models of our solar system, as well as reports from places like Tang Dynasty China, which according to the theory wouldn't be suffering from the phantom time because it was a Eurocentric theory. Yeah. Accounting for the phantom time causes the chronology of these events to become distorted. But if we include the phantom time, they all line up. So these eclipses and the, the appearance of Halley's Comet all show up when they're supposed to if we include the records that were supposedly fabricated to make up the extra uh, 300 years. Okay, so it basically the theory is disproved by the fact that space is a record of how time is passing? Yes, more or less. Okay. It's like if I were to take a movie yeah, and I were to remove three minutes of the audio but not the video and then claim that that's how the movie was supposed to be, all of the audio and video wouldn't line up. It would be off by three minutes. That would be unwatchable. So anyway, that's more or less the, the skinny on the Phantom Time hypothesis. From there, I was originally planning on going to the page four conspiracy theories to see what other dumb theories I could find. But I was just so intrigued by the Dendo chronology that I had to hop there instead and read that page. Okay. So, Dendo chronology comes from the Greek dendron, meaning tree, chronos, meaning time, and logica, meaning the study of. And it describes the scientific method of dating tree rings to the exact year they were formed. That sounds like something you'd be interested in. Just knowing you. <laughs> yes, I'm a nerd. So most people are aware that counting the rings in a tree will tell you how old it was. And we even referenced that with the earwax plugs of whales back in episode five. Yeah. I think it was. Yeah. But people may not know why that is. So the way that it works is the same way as the earwax. There's constantly a layer of cells growing and expanding at the edge of the tree just below the bark. And it grows in a predictable pattern throughout the year, creating the rings. During the summer, it creates the light bands because it's growing faster. And during the winter, it creates the darker bands because it's growing slower. Yeah. Just like our friends, uh, the whales, and, and their earwax. Yeah, exactly. Nature. It's cool. So, I'm getting ahead of myself here to, to tell you this, but I just want to start off with a, a big number. Okay. A timeline of tree rings in the Northern Hemisphere has actually been established as of 2020 that goes back 12,310 years. Damn. Holy fuck. So now I'm going to go through explaining how that is. Somebody had to count to 12,000. Oh, no, it's much more than that because it's not from like a single tree. It's so that you could take a random tree or like a piece of timber that was used in like say the roof of a barn from Anglo-Saxon England and you could look at the tree rings and be able to read it like a barcode to tell you when that tree was alive. What? So I'm going to get to that. Oh my god. The way we can tell that is by comparative analysis of trees in the same locations. Basically, the better a season, the more a tree will grow in that year and the wider the growth rings for that season will be. Conversely, a tree in a crappy growing season will result in a thinner growth ring for that year. Now, this isn't an exact truth. I'm dumbing it down to make it easier for me to understand and therefore easier for me to explain. Okay. For instance, there are conditions that can lead to multiple rings being laid down in a single year or even only one ring for multiple years. For the most part, though, one ring equals one year. That's crazy. 
So, uh, so one of the critical aspects to the science of dendrochronology is that trees in the same region tend to develop the same patterns of growth rings in a given chronology. If two trees growing in the same forest experience three good years in a row, then two bad years, and then five good ones, they'll develop the same pattern of three thick rings, followed by two thin rings, followed by five thick rings. I'm beginning to see how they are like barcodes. Exactly. Now, using the rings of many trees to make sure that the pattern exists within all of them, that's not just a fluke in the one tree that you're examining. Yeah. And making sure that all those trees were felled at a known time, let's say March 5th, 2021. Yeah. We can count backwards in years to 2020, 2019, 2018, etc., and match those years up to patterns we can see in the rings. So now that we have that hypothetical pattern that I mentioned earlier showing up on a tree we just cut down to study, three thick, two thin, five thick, we can count back from our known year 2021 and find that that pattern is for the years 1956 to 1965. Now, if we find trees from the same geographic area, whose chopping date is unknown, we can search for that pattern and count from there to find out that it was chopped down in, say, 1975. Then, working backwards, we can determine another pattern from even earlier in time than our modern trees can give us, say, a pattern we notice in trees from 1884 to 1889. Then, we notice that pattern in even older timber we have that makes up the beams of an old lumberjack's cabin, and that helps us find patterns that go back even further, etc., etc., but here's my question. How do they... I mean, wood isn't always cut in a way that you can see very many lines like you can if you cut the tree just straight in half. So how can they date it based on a random piece of wood in a shack? That knowledge is a secret that the Dendo chronologists chose not to include on Wikipedia. I'm just trusting the scientists here. Okay. It sounds crazy. Through this pattern recognition, people who are more passionate about trees than I am, and that's saying something, have already done the work, and we have a chronology going back over 10,000 years in the Northern Hemisphere. Wow. Made using archaeological finds, fossilized petrified wood, and things like that. And this is really cool, because it can actually tell us a lot about how the climate was in certain areas on almost a year-by-year basis, being able to tell exactly what year is represented by what ring, but it can also tell us exactly when a tree lived, died, and was likely turned into a construction material, which can help us give us a precise date to, say, an old French church, or the renovations of an English castle. Damn. This is a strange branch of science. So that's how you can tell that certain ancient archaeological finds are from a specific date through this dendrochronology. Okay. So I use today as our baseline to work from in the example, but tree ring timelines actually have their own calendar and are dated uh, as years BP, before present, which would be uh, technically... January 1st, 1950. So a ring pattern for 1949 would be the year 1 BP. As a side note, it's really becoming a goal of this podcast to discover every single obscure calendar system out there, isn't it? It kind of is. That's excellent. 
so why what's the sorry what's the significance of 1950 i just missed that i imagine that's just when they started doing this science so before present because you're counting backwards in time and that was the present at the time so that's they just kept it so that it wouldn't constantly be you wouldn't constantly have to remember that 1949 was 1 bp and then now it's 2 bp because present's moving forwards what about trees that are born or i was gonna say born but planted after 1950 there's never been a new tree since 1950 derek come on (laughs) okay The ring patterns are also helpful in allowing the identification of not only time, but location, too, as the patterns are unique to geographic locations. So, you can tell that, say, a Viking ship found in England was made from timber from Denmark. Or the wood for a wood panel painting came from trees in Italy, despite the painting now being in France. And, for instance, this has been used, uh, one of the examples given on the page, was that a wood panel painting of Mary Queen of Scots that was believed to be an 18th century copy was in pick up was analyzed using dendrochronology and the analysis of the wood panels proved that it was actually a 16th century original piece. Wow. Yeah. Dendrochronology, pretty cool. I still don't understand how they have like how they managed to collect so much information about trees because that sounds like the most tedious thing in the world. It's really it's cool, but having... it sounds very tedious. It's called having no life. Ouch. No, I have mad respect for, for scientists. Anyway, that's where I ended my first uh, dive. What did you learn this week? Well, um, I will tell you that. I learned some things. Now, the topic I was going to do regardless, the music topic was, uh, I started reading the page for Bob Dylan. Are you familiar? Okay. I think I've heard the name Bob Dylan. Refresh me. I'm bad at names. Pretty famous guy. Um, he played in, he started playing in the 60s or started getting big in the 60s. Um, but I'll get into, get into that. Bob Dylan is actually not as legal name he was born robert allen zimmerman uh robert became bob and then he just adopted the name dylan he's an american singer songwriter author and visual artist and some of his accolades include recording influential albums in the early 60s such as the freewheeling bob dylan that's a personal favorite of mine Uh, the times they are changing bring it all back home Highway 61 Revisited, and more. He also wrote a song called Like a Rolling Stone, which the magazine called Rolling Stone said in 1965 that no other pop song has so thoroughly challenged and transformed the commercial laws and artistic conventions of its time for all time. How so? I don't know. This is a quote. So he's pretty well regarded. And 1965 was kind of his early career. His only his first album only came out in like 61 or 62, I think. And his second album was The Free Wheel and Bob Dylan that came out in 63. Nice. However, in 1966, he had a motorcycle accident and 
he had to stop touring. Now, there's a lot more to this page, but unfortunately that's how far I got on this page this week because I actually saw another hyperlink and got distracted. You know, it was only a matter of time before one of us got distracted. I know, right? Okay, so I wanted to read about a band called The Hawks. Now, they were a Canadian-American rock band, rock group, formed in Toronto, Ontario. Ooh, I know that place. Canada. I've been there. In 1967. They're called The Hawks after Ronnie Hawkins, who is a country artist from Toronto. Or actually, he was from America, but he was working in Toronto. And he created the band by plucking up local talent, like the best from each upcoming group to be part of his backup band so the band had five members four canadians and one american their names were rick danko garth hudson richard manuel robbie robertson levon helm and that's it i just said the last one with the wrong inflection (laughs) so levon helm was the american and the other four were all Uh, locals from Toronto, three of whom Ronnie Hawkins recognized their talent while they were in upcoming bands and plucked each one from a different band. That's kind of a dick move, though. I know it is totally a dick move, but he assembled them. It's like, oh, you're an up and coming band. I'm just going to steal your best guy. That's what he did. He literally did that. That's how he got Rick Danko, Richard Manuel and Robbie Robertson. Anyway, the fifth member was Hudson, Garth Hudson. And he didn't want to join at first. The band heard his sound. They heard his sick sound on the electric, uh, no, the electric pedal the pedal steel guitar. That's what they call it, not electric. They saw his skill and they wanted him in the band, but he was like, nah. And then they begged him. And then he was like, okay, but only on strict conditions. First of all, you have to buy me a new electric organ. He played the electric organ as well. He might have just been an electric organ player. I don't know. I read the page. I should know this, but I've forgotten now. Only the most thorough research is done by us here at Unreliable Sources. Obviously. <laughs> and so... You know what? In, in terms of research thoroughness, it goes us, then the dendochronologists. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway, they... <laughs> Uh, Garth Hudson made them buy him a new electric organ. So he's like, buy me a new instrument so that I can play in your band. And then he also made each member of the band, the other four members, pay him 10 bucks a week as their music coach. <laughs> because he, st- he studied in university and he wanted to become a music teacher and make lots of money. Nice. But he was like, I don't want to take a big chance to join the band. But then he's like, okay, fine. But if you pay me 10 bucks a week each, so 40 bucks a week, then I'll do it. And that is, I'd like to comment, that's 10 bucks in their time, 1963 it might have been. That's $90 today. $90 each. A day? Or was a it week. a week? Okay, a week. Per week. Still, that's... $90 per week That's each. not bad. That's a nice chunk of change. He was pay- making his fellow group members, the fellow members of the band, pay him. 
Derek, is this a bad time to let you know that I'm making you pay me $120 an episode? Oh, thank you for telling me. So now I'm already $840 in debt. I guess this one would make yeah. $960 in debt, right? And before you ask, that's already factoring in the friends and family discount. <laughs> Please hold for technical difficulties. So what were you saying before that interruption, Derek? Good point. Good thing I was saying something. Yeah. 90 bucks a week each. Crazy. It's a lot. And then they left Ronnie Hawkins after playing with him for a couple of years, I think till 1965, if I'm basing this off my memory. They were creatively bored, uh-huh. and they said he was too overbearing. For example, he would actually find them if they brought their girlfriends to the clubs when they were performing because it would limit the room for single girls and also if they smoked marijuana and this was the 60s yeah there was a a whole bunch of uh of marijuana smoking from what i understand in the 60s that's an overbearing manager when you're actually becoming more talented than he is And one of them even said that they were just more musically ambitious than Ronnie was. Fucking savage. I mean, they were younger. They were up and coming. Like, they had space to grow. Ronnie was old. He was, like, in his 50s or something. I didn't actually read the page for him. But he was older when he did this. Like, when he he was late in his career, he was already established. These guys, they were making their own space. All right. Anything else? (laughs) So, after they left Ronnie, after they left Hawkins, they almost immediately became the backing band for Bob Dylan. That's how I got here. Oh, there we go. It's all tying together. And Helm, that is Levon Helm, didn't do well with the increased exposure and the negative reception of their new combination of folk music but with electric instruments like the electric guitar and the electric organ. Yep. And so he actually just stopped touring, and instead he went and worked on an oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico. Hmm. Because if your music career isn't going to work out... Might as well have a nice uh, climate to be sulky in. (laughs) Yeah. He did that for a year. And then... After they were touring with Bob Dylan, they wanted to do their own thing. And they decided they needed a new name. And they went under a few different ones, including the Canadian Squires and Levon and the Hawks. But eventually, they decided to call themselves The Band. Just The Band. Yeah, just The Band. Because... Okay. When they were touring with Bob Dylan, they went by, the act was called Bob Dylan and the Band. And so everyone just (laughs) knew them as the band. Because they'd show up and they'd, and like, I guess the security would be like, you're the band. You know? Nice. So they called themselves the band. And that's why I went off the Bob Dylan page. Because the hyperlink was just... The band. It was it was its own hyperlink. The band. And I was like, I have to read this. Okay. Yeah, so anyway, 
After they named themselves the band, they started recording their own music, and they recorded their first album, Music from Big Pink, in 1968, which was... Big Pink sounds like someone's talking about, like, Big Pharma. Yeah, uh, well, it's it's actually... It's a conspiracy perpetrated by Big Pink. Yeah, um, the Big Pink is actually a reference to their recording studio, which was in a Big Pink house. There we go. The band in the Big Pink house. Yeah. Um, so their album, Music from Big Pink, it was really, really well received as an album. I listened to it today. Um, it was pretty good. Wait. So let's get this. I want to get my timeline straight. You listened to it today. Yeah. And by today, I assume you mean yesterday because it's past midnight for you. Yes, that's exactly what I mean. Thank but you. But we weren't planning on recording this episode today. We were planning on recording it yesterday. So were you originally going to have that ready, or did you just decide with your extra time, let's listen to the album? No, I actually listened to it yesterday, and now you're just pointing out a huge flaw. <laughs> Plot holes, Derek. Plot holes! It's a conspiracy. Pick up. Pick up. Fuck you. Sorry. Pick up. I can't even remember what I said. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I actually listened to it yesterday. It was pretty good. Oh, good. Yeah, and on January 12th, 1970, they appeared on the cover of Time magazine. Being That's the a first, big magazine. Yeah, they were the first rock group after the Beatles to get this honor. Oh, damn. However, this too is all I got through the page because I saw another hypertext link that was so distracting <laughs> that I had to follow it immediately. And you'll very Derek. much understand why. You had scatterbrain this episode. I know, okay? But wait, it's worth it because I went to the page for a band. The band is called the Flying Burrito Brothers. You have my attention. <laughs> okay. It's called the Flying Burrito Brothers. And they're an American country I know, rock wait, wait, band. I want to know the context in which the Flying Burrito Brothers was hyperlinked on the page for the band. They just worked with them. Um, I'll tell you exactly. It was... They just worked alongside them. Here, I actually have the page open in front of me. A critical and commercial triumph, the band, along with works by the Birds and the Flying Burrito Brothers, established a musical template, sometimes dubbed country rock that paved the way to the eagles oh okay neat so the flying burrito brothers hit me with their burrito-y musical (laughs) deliciousness i want to preface this with i read that entire page for the flying burrito brothers and i could not find out why they're called that I don't know why. I really wanted to know, but I don't. However, I did learn some of the other things about them, okay? They're an American country rock band. They were formed in 1968, and they had many complicated problems with members 
who had large egos and it was very complicated. Their history page was just a roller coaster. History uh-huh. section, I guess, of the page was a roller coaster. So I'm going to not tell it all because that's too much. But what I will tell you about is that between 1968, when they were formed, and the present, they went through several names, including oh, so. the Flying Burrito Brothers. The best. The Burrito Brothers. Pretty good, but not quite as good. And Burrito Deluxe. Burrito Deluxe is a pretty good one. Yeah, pretty pretty good. And, this is my favorite part, their lineup changed a lot through the years. Obviously, I mentioned the yes, pretty complicated saying. stuff, right? And so Wikipedia provides a list, and I counted the list. And there were 53 members between 1968 <laughs> and now. Oh, are they still active? Yeah, they're still active. Okay. They, curr- Is there any member they currently are called Burrito Deluxe. Are there is there no member that, that has been consistent the entire time. But there are members. In fact, none of the original members are currently active. I think they all mm-hmm. stopped around the early 2000s. That's when the the last original member was out, I think. So um, then... But now they're an entirely different like entirely different lineup. It was just the band was inherited by other artists. So this Strange. brings us then to the paradox of Theseus's ship. It's literally the Theseus's ship. I do. However, I did want to say one more thing, and that is that the one of the most consistent members, one who was there the one of the longest members was called Sneaky Pete. Sneaky Pete? Yes, yeah, Sneaky Pete Kleino. No. His name okay, is Sneaky so... Pete. So my my boss is named Peter, and occasionally he comes to the he uh, he comes to the warehouse, which he doesn't usually work at the warehouse where I work. Yeah. And but like he he'll come unannounced. So the warehouse manager calls him Sneaky Pete. <laughs> okay, that's excellent. Oh, uh. my alarm's going off again. You know what that means? It's midnight for you. It's midnight for me. We've been recording this for over an hour. Hopefully for the folks back home though, <laughs> it won't have been a full hour between my alarm and this alarm because your editing skills are to quote you in episode one adequate (laughs) yeah thanks um it's gonna be like 20 minutes 20 minutes between the hour that we pass hopefully (laughs) Uh, anyway um something else um and that's all i had on this intermission dive three different topics yeah let's take a break i'm gonna have a second drink on this podcast so am i i'm already done my first one i'm just waiting okay you know what well we'll intermission at the time i'm gonna go intermission drink break go welcome to the unreliable sources intermission feel free to take this time to pause have a bathroom break perhaps get a drink but if you're driving, make sure it's water. Hydrate or dehydrate. Now back to the episode. So after our first ever official... What's it called? Shit. Intermission? 
intermission from recording the podcast, I went upstairs and got all the ingredients that you listed out for your personal prefer, uh, preferred way to make a Tom Collins. Yes. So let's add some more ice because a lot of it melted. Um, I did my best to shatter this whiskey cube into more manageable shards. <laughs> so, there it goes. Ice. So, walk me through this Tom Collins of yours. It's going to start very similarly. Uh, let me guess. Two ounces. Two ounces of gin. One ounce of lemon Two juice. Two ounces of tanqueray. Yes, two ounces of tanqueray, one ounce of lemon juice. Oh, those are both a little bit over an ounce, but whatever. I bought this bottle like three days ago and it's almost empty. To be fair, I did get a Mickey to start. That's fair. Then that's okay. Then that's a small one. Which, just in case uh, this goes live, I don't know if this part is going to go live or not, but just in case it does, and to our listeners not in Canada, a Mickey is a 375 milliliter bottle of hard liquor. Yeah, it's not even slang across all across Canada. Here they call it yeah. something else. Uh, in New Brunswick, they call oh, it. I'm just realizing. Else. I'm Harris I'm calls using it something the, else. The ice cube. I'm using the ice cube mold that came with uh, that came with one of the bottles of 99 whiskey, uh, Wayne Gretzky's whiskey. Yeah. And his father died today, so that's sad. Oh. I'm pouring I'm pouring out this ounce of lemon juice. Uh, I'm pouring it out for Wayne Gretzky's dad, but it's also not going on the ground because the carpet is white and uh, it's going into the drink. But, you know, it's the thought that counts. Yeah, exactly. So what comes next? Um, next is just a, a can of Sprite. Easy peasy. Oh, you mean uh, this can of Sprite? Uh-huh, that one. Also the mixing size, by the way, 222 mils. That one should be fine because it's sweeter. Yeah, I, honestly, I'm going to say that the last drink was a little quinine forward. I might add some simple syrup next time I make a G&T. Yeah, they, uh, the tonic water is sweetened. But it's not very sweet. All right, so spoon. Nice and mixed. And Tom Collins. That's pretty good. I think I like that better than just the G&T, honestly. I do, too. That's my favorite gin drink. <sighs> mm. I do have five more things of tonic water, though. So, And I'm not liable to drink them as is. Yeah, I wouldn't. So I'll probably get some more gin, because I have, like, four ounces of gin left. <laughs> yeah, it's not a bad drink, you know. I think it's a good one to have, just no. when you... I think, and because you also get like a lot of the fruity flavors of gin, I think gin is something I could get into. Mm-hmm. I think it'll always be a backseat to whiskey, in my opinion. I love a good whiskey. Yeah, I feel the same way. But I feel like I can, I can fuck with some gin. Yeah, you gotta explore your palate for different types of alcohol. 
Exactly. Anyway, next I moved on to that new Eric I mentioned last episode. Oh, uh, sorry. That threw all the counts off. I forgot to mention the Flying Burrito Brothers. Among their 53 members, they had an Eric. (sighs) Did he have a hyperlink to his page? No. Unfortunately, he did not have a page. His name is Eric Dalton. He played the drums from 1972 to 1973. So this is now going to be uh, take the second place for the most Eric's we've talked about in one episode. After episode two, where I talked about like briefly several Eric's while I was on the page for Eric. That's fair. Um, and now and I didn't mean to interrupt, but I did forget to mention that because I knew no, you'd no, that's, love to no, hear that it. Is, Derek, that is integral information. So next, I moved on <laughs> to the new Eric I mentioned last episode that's thrown all of my counts off. Okay. That man was Eric, king of the Visigoths from 466 to 484. Okay. Fun fact, he was born in or around. Uh, dates are fucky when you go this far back. So he was born in the year... 420 blaze it blaze it makes him the oldest person we've talked about on the podcast older by about a generation or two than churdich unless you count my many mentions of woden he's older (laughs) so okay eric has a rather unique spelling for his name that being e u r i c i've never seen it before So this is a new spelling for Eric on the page. Okay. And rest assured, every time I say Eric's name, I spelt it properly in my notes. I respect a man whose name is Eric, no matter how he spells it, even if it does use a K. They're just evil. I respect them, but they're evil. Can you imagine how evil it would be? Like, E-R-I-K is one thing, but can you imagine somebody who spelled my name with just a C? Like, not a C-K, but just a C. Honestly, I think your name should just be D-E-R-I-C. Done. I saw someone, I saw a, a bumper sticker on the back of someone's car. It was like, I assume a bumper sticker for their company. And it was Derek something, and it was D-E-R-R-I-K. And it's like, peep, why, your your name is dumb, Derek. There's too many ways to spell Derek. Like, I, I get there's a lot of ways to spell Eric, too, but nowadays there's just two. Well, D-E-R-R-I-C-K, I believe, is the spelling of the oil rig kind of Derek. Oh, it could have been that then. Um, and I could be getting angry for nothing. Anyway. But there are a lot of na- ways to spell my name. My personal favorite experience was the birthday card I received when I was like nine years old that was D-E-R-R-R-I-K. You mentioned this in episode two. I probably did. It's a story. <laughs> Who puts three R's in a row? That's not how consonants work. <laughs> rules were meant to be broken. I don't think there's By the way, a when single... I said rules there, it was spelt with three R's. I don't fuck you. I don't think there's a single episode. <laughs> no, fuck, that's not what I mean to say. I don't think there's a single other word in the English language. That has three of the same letter in a row. There are. What about three of the same consonant in a row? I could understand a vowel. I feel like there's some crazy spelling out there. 
but a consonant, three of the same consonant in a row. That doesn't happen. Are you looking it up right now? Is that why you're silent? Yes. So, generally speaking, words that in English that have three of the same letters in a row uh, have a hyphen between them. Yeah. So it'll be like bee eater, and it's B-E-E hyphen E-A-T-E-R. Stuff finder. There is one, one four-letter word that contains R-R-R, Derek, in the English language. What is Burr. No, it's not allowed. That's not a word that is in. Yes, it is. <laughs> onomatopoeia that's what it's called right that's doesn't, what it is doesn't it's stop not it a from word. being a word no it, onomatopoeia are still words <laughs> uh, so that out of the way tell me more about eric so eric was the son of theodoric the first and began his reign after murdering his brother theodoric the second classic roger better watch out because it looks like eric's tend to murder their brothers a lot looking at you eric and alaric on becoming king eric inherited a large portion of the visigothic lands in gaul uh, Gaul being the geographic region of Europe where much of French 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 I love I love French dressing <laughs> but now the, <laughs> the question is is that a joke about French dressing or ranch dressing I don't know it's too confusing all right where were we I don't remember tell me what you were talking about Shortly after becoming a fratricidal monarch, Eric was tossed into a series of civil wars with fellow Visigothic kings and chieftains. He was victorious and became the first ruler of a Visigothic nation in history. Okay. After this, he took advantage of the collapsing Roman state and began pushing into Hispania, and by the time that the Western Roman Empire fell, in 476, he controlled basically the entire Iberian Peninsula. Okay, this wow. This is likely why we have Spanish and Portuguese spellings of his name, too, which are Everick and Yuriko. Yuriko! That's your new name. Yuriko! I'll accept Yuriko. I'm going to call you Yuriko. So, in fact, I'm changing your name in my phone. Wonderful. Yuriko. So, before Eric, Visigothic kings ruled as legates under the Roman emperor. Yeah. But Eric, harnessing the power of his name, <laughs> became the first to successfully declare independence from the empire, and in 475, one year before Rome's collapse, he forced the emperor to recognize his independence in return for giving him Gaul back. Eric was also a very learned man for his age, and was the first Visigothic king to officially codify a set of laws for his subjects to abide by, the Code 
of Eric. <laughs> and finally, Eric died of natural causes in the year 484, with a kingdom that encompassed a third of modern France and almost all of Iberia. Wow. That's a, that's a solid chunk of land. And I also find it worth noting that Eric's successor was a man named Alaric. Oh! Hmm. Eric and Alaric. Where have I heard that before? Eric and Alaric, two names intertwined by destiny, always repeating in a cycle. One of these days I'm going to meet someone named Alaric and they'd better watch out. (laughs) So from here I went to the code of Eric, or... The Codex Ericanus. And yes, it's Ericanus. Okay. So the Codex Ericanus. I went there to see what a brother murderer thought was just. And the laws made a clear distinction of peoples between the Visigoths and the Gallo-Roman people. So that's a good start, you know, segregation... That's that's generally a good thing I, I, I think we agree on nowadays. Oh, right? obviously, yes, of course. Uh, the Codex Aricanus seems to have been primarily concerned, however, with border disputes, land divisions, and the lending of money, purchases, donations, marriage, and succession. So by looking at the law code and comparing it to those of earlier Roman emperors, it serves as good evidence for how Romanized the Visigoths had become by the collapse of the empire, which is neat. And the Codex Ericanus has also been observed as the basis for several other law codes, like the Lex Bioveriorum? Yes. Bioveriorum? Yes, B A I B A I U V A R I O. You're spelling too fast. I can't do it that fast. <laughs> Get good scrub. You are the one. The Lex Berriorio. Anemone. Anemone. Worcestershire sauce. Anyways, <clears throat> Worcestershire sauce. This son of a bitch Worcestershire. had never heard Worcestershire pronounced out loud. So he's making burgers at my house. And he's like, do you guys have any Worcestershire sauce? That's, and no, I'm like, no, no, no. Hey, you're just you just telling me. That's what my dad calls it, too. Oh, no. That's even worse. I didn't know that. That's where I learned it from asshole how else do you think we learn things I, from our parents <laughs> hey dad if you're listening to this i just thought this. you'd never heard <laughs> i just thought you'd never heard it spoken out loud <laughs> my dad gave me the recipe for the burgers <laughs> <laughs> fuck you right uh, love you so dad the <laughs> eric Ennis has also been observed as the basis for several other law codes, like the Lex Biavariorum. Fuck it. I'm not going to be able to pronounce that. It's the first Bavarian codification of law. It's that, that, that's the example I chose to use instead of one of the other ones that I could pronounce. I was like, no, I'm going to give myself a challenge. I'll choose the one that's impossible to pronounce. (laughs) 
Good job. You did it. You did it. Okay. <laughs> this whole episode's been a train wreck. It's 1.30. Uh, it's 1.30 in the morning. <laughs> and that's where I ended my research for this episode. Well, thank you for teaching me that, friend. I'm going to read... I'm gonna read that. I, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that again though, just in case you want a less exasperated edit. But from so I'm gonna, <clears throat> and that's what I learned this episode. <laughs> Thank you for teaching me that. I already said that. What's so funny, Derek? Uh, it's it's the What's midnight so insanity kicking in. Yeah, so we're agreeing never to record an episode this late again, right? Um, yeah, so, anyway, there's things so. I talked about and stuff, and the other things and stuff I did is stuff and things. And things, yeah, yeah and the thing is stuff, and it's about music, it. yeah. So, I don't actually remember how I got to this page. I was ta- I was reading the Beatles page, I think, and then I re- was reading the page for the company, Beatles Limited, which they then changed to... Apple Core, spelled like corpse, you know, like, you know how it's spelled, C O R P S. Yes. Yeah. Actually, but it's pronounced... maybe not. You're putting a lot of faith in my ability to spell. Derek. You're bad at spelling. I know. It's pronounced Apple Core because it's a pun. The Beatles were like, "That's a pun. We should name our company that." You know what? Solid reason. And yeah, it's a solid, great reason. They started the company. After they started making so much money that they were going to be taxed a lot of money and their financial manager was like, hey, if you start a company, you pay fewer taxes. And they were like, then we're starting a company. And they did it. Apple Corp. Not only because it's a pun, but the original reason, according to Paul McCartney, is that here's a quote. We're starting a brand new form of business. So what is the first thing that a child is taught when he begins to grow up? A is for Apple. And so they called themselves Apple. They wanted to call themselves just Apple, but then they were like, but then they're uh, the, the people who allow businesses to start being businesses. I don't know what, the, what that job is. We're like, no, you can't. So they were like, okay, what about Apple Core? And that's how they became a company. Neat. Here's the premise of the company. Yes, please regale me. The Beatles had made a fortune for themselves, lots of money, and they were like, we got, we already achieved our dreams. So now we're going to start a company where artists can come to us and partner with us to get funding for whatever they want to do. Oh, that's very, uh, very cool. Yeah. Now... It didn't go very well. Oh, no. So a lot of people reportedly just got the money and ditched and you never saw them again. Which is kind of shitty. But also, the Beatles weren't great at managing a company. (laughs) Um, Maybe it was the marijuana. Perhaps, but also that they were musicians, not business leaders. Um, And so the the company hemorrhaged money really badly because employees would, this is like straight off the Wikipedia page. 
because I, I'm not quoting, but I'm just like this information is like right there. It says it. It says uh, their employees would spend money, would spend company money on drugs, alcohol, expensive lunches in London and international phone calls. The employees were using company money to buy drugs. Those are some perks. <laughs> and, you know, some people get their cell phone paid for. Some people get dental. A ring. Okay. of Apple Core. <laughs> Ringo once said, we had like a thousand people that weren't needed, but they all enjoyed it. They were all getting paid for sitting around. We had a guy there just to read the tarot cards. It was craziness. <laughs> I found my dream job. Yeah. Okay. And all of this financial trouble eventually led to the breakup of the band. It wasn't the only cause, but it was part of it. Um, now, AppleCore, which was started... First, before the more commonly known now, Apple Incorporated, yeah. you know, the one, the two companies have had a large legal dispute throughout the years over the name. It all started. Oh, does Apple Core still exist? Yeah. Oh, geez. So it all started. Are they, do they, are they still giving out the same company benefits? No. Over the course of their time, the Beatles eventually decided that they were not doing a great job and hired a, an actual business manager to come on. And it basically turned into like a scenario where the business, where the actual new leader was like, okay, who the fuck was spending money on this and that and this and that? And people got in tons of shit for it. It's the end of an era, but you know, probably for the best. So continue, uh, legal disputes. Yeah, so the so over the years they've had many legal disputes. The first one was just over the name Apple. See, Apple Corps was the bigger company at the time. And so they were worried that Apple Inc. was like they were like, uh, Apple Inc., you can't like come into our territory. So they had a lawsuit and eventually they settled on Apple Inc. paying a um, settlement. They paid a settlement of 80,000 pounds, which is about 313,000 pounds nowadays or 552 Canadian dollars. Sorry, 552,000 Canadian dollars. <laughs> I was about to say, I didn't know the Canadian dollar got so powerful. And also Apple Inc. had to agree to never go into the music business. However, the Ooh. lawsuit resurfaced again in 1989 when Apple Inc. created new computers that had the ability to play MIDI sound, which is like programming a computer to play pitches. MIDI. So this isn't even about like the iPod yet. No, it's 1989. Uh, and Apple Corps argued that this was a break of the contract, the agreement that they had 
that Apple Inc. wouldn't get into the music business, and Apple Inc. had to pay a gain. Apple Inc. lost and had to pay £26.5 million, which is equivalent to £57 million today, or hundred, just over £100 million Canadian. Wowzer, that's a lot of money. Yeah. However, <clears throat> Apple Incorporated started gaining quite a bit of steam. And the next time they came to court, in 2006, after Apple Inc. released the iPod and the iTunes Store in 2003, there was a very short court battle before Apple Inc. won the lawsuit and subsequently made a deal to buy the name and trademark Apple, agreeing to still exclusively license the name to Apple Corps. So essentially nothing, nothing changed. Both companies were still using the name. But now Apple Inc. owns the exclusive rights to that name, and they just license it to Apple Corps to use for free. They're like, you can use this, but we own it because we're the more powerful company. I feel like that's kind of bullshit. Like that they were that was that's clear breach in contract. The iPod. I I would say the computer one is is bullshit on Apple Inc's behalf. But the iPod is a clear breach in contract. Like that is a music playing device. Not a device not a device that can be used to create music. It's like, that's its purpose. Yes, it's a very interesting overlap between the companies because Apple Core actually had other divisions besides their main uh, music publishing division. You know, they had a, a music studio and they signed other artists. But yes. there was also Apple Film, which published films that... Uh, and produced films um, Apple Publishing for books Apple Music which was their main branch I already talked about and my favorite just because of this wonderful crossover we're going to get is Apple Electronics a division oh. of a company that was started before Apple Incorporated so there was a company called, or a division of a company called Apple Electronics before Apple Inc. came in and started making Macintosh and iPods and iPhones and iPads. All of that. Before it all, there was another company owned by the Beatles called Apple Electronics. I did not know that. Take that, Steve Jobs and whatever Wozniak. I can't remember his first name. Oh, now that you say it, I can't remember it. I know this name. I know, of course, I know this name. But fuck, why? Derek, just give up. This episode won't let you remember. It's cursed. <laughs> It's Steve Wozniak. I feel like it starts with a... It, they're both Steve? Yeah. Okay. That's why it was so hard to remember. <clears throat> anyway, do you have anything else to say? 
Did you move on from any from there to anywhere else? Nope. That's all I have for you. All right. So, can we officially end this train wreck of an episode? Not until we name it. Aha! That would be a right on brand for this episode, though. Forgetting to name it. We can't so right do it bat, if we forget uh, to name another episode. We've already used the name, we, the one we forgot to name. We can't. What are we gonna do then? In that case, we're gonna say the one we forgot to name two. That's that's not gonna work. We can't forget to name another episode ever again. It's already happened once. That's the one. The one we neglected to name. Anyway, so the first thing that comes to mind for me though is what we said at the beginning of the episode. And I'd be just calling this the latest episode. The latest episode. That's a good one. I had written down the two-day episode. Oh, the two-day episode is a good one. Um, but um, I don't know. The two-day episode, we could... We could call it uh, ep- episode seven, or episode eight, The Tale of Two Eric's. episode 8 the most chaotic thing we've ever created episode 8 this shouldn't exist episode 8 by rights we shouldn't even be here by rights we shouldn't even be here you know that's a reference to the fact that in the books Sam and Frodo don't go to Osgiliath I know, I know. You've, but the movies had the. I know that's why I'm using. That's why I'm using the voice. Hmm. I like the two day episode personally. Two day episode. Or, calendars are still weird. Calendars are still weird. Oh. Oh. What if I just, what if we named it this, ready? Unreliable Sources, episode 8, colon, the two-day episode, colon, the latest episode, colon, calendars are still weird. Can we make a name that long? (laughs) I don't know. Sure, I like it. As much of that... Okay, here's my promise to you. It will be as many characters of that name as will fit. Unreliable Sources, Episode 8. The the latest episode... No, no, it was the two-day episode. You have to start the whole ending over The latest episode. Unreliable Sources, Episode 8. The latest episode. Unreliable Sources, Episode 8. The two-day episode, colon, the latest episode. Unreliable Sources, Episode 8. The two-day episode, colon, the latest episode, colon. Calendars are still weird. Thanks for listening to Unreliable Sources. Derek and I hope you enjoyed it, and we would like to thank Wikipedia for everything we learned this episode. We are eternally grateful. Wikipedia is a non-profit website and relies primarily on donations from people like us to continue sharing its knowledge for free. If you can, consider throwing a small donation their way. And until next time, never stop learning.